Stop trying to make Fetch happen. But Fetch is from the same town that you are. Fetch has letters to their mom. Fetch donates to charity. <laughs> On Fridays, Fetch wears pink. <laughs> Live from a dangerous tragic flashback in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 310 of Total Party Thrill, the podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about creating and playing endearing and likable villains. But first the party browses Crystal in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, Carmen San Diego is somewhere in the world in the Character Creation Forge. Ishan, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? That's the question, Shane. Or maybe even where in time is Carmen San Diego? <laughs> That's the sequel. And it, a much worse game. <laughs> Definitely. Also, not a game show. Not a game show at all. 34 hours to find her in all of history? <laughs> also, she she got kind of genocidal in that game. I think one time she stole the history of medicine. That's a, Oops. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Oops, all smallpox. <laughs> Oops, all anti-vax. <laughs> That's what's under that red trench coat. <laughs> Mercury. All right. Well, where where are we at the Gates of Morning campaign? So the Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in Fairhaven, the peaceful capital of Ondare, the party is hunting down Quarry Mine Seeds. The party has finally shattered an illusion that hit a 200-foot-tall Riedrin tower, seemingly from the entire city. They know that this is one of the fabled Hanbalani Altas, which Vesikad, the Kalishtar, knows are used to control the minds of the Riedrin people. What it's doing here in a city in Corvair, they don't know yet, but it can't be good. So as the party descends from their vantage point in the bell tower, they can see that crystals are now growing out of the walls and thick, fleshy growths pulsate slowly. The dust here is less thick, and it's apparent that there's been movement recently. In the courtyard, the Hanbalan looks like it used to have entrances around its base that are now sealed with smooth stone. Lenore approaches it and presses a palm to one of the seals, and after a moment, decides to use the Riedrin passphrase, On the Psyche, no scars remain. stone seal melts open, revealing four-foot-thick metal walls and a hollow interior. A bright green glowing crystal core ten feet in diameter stretches from the ground all the way very nearly to the top of the ovoid two hundred feet above their heads. But Ward notices that the ceiling doesn't quite reach all the way to the very top. So Bramble grabs Zan and dimension doors above the ceiling and they arrive in a small chamber at the apex. The floor is made of clear crystal, and the green core glows up through it to touch the ceiling. Small portholes allow a view into the distance outside. Out of the ground, a crystal dais grows, atop which sits four crystal rods set in an arcane configuration. The pair drops a long, long rope down for the others to climb up. And now, with the party reunited at the very top, Vesikad and Zan tinker with the apparatus, long enough to figure out how to channel magical energy into the crystals, which they assume controls the monolith somehow. But while they think they can change the settings, they have no idea what any of those settings actually do. 
after some more study, Zan is able to discern four or five configurations that seem often used because the crystals slide more easily into place. He also finds two that are rarely used. The party decides one of these will shut down the monolith. One of them. Zan tries the first configuration. His channeling is successful, and the core glows a brighter green. From inside the cathedral, they hear an inhuman roar. To find out what's going on, Warden wild shapes into an air elemental to scout it out. And flying around above the ceiling of the cathedral, he can see that one of the fleshy growths has burst open. And now he can see a humanoid with tentacles ambling through the halls. He flies back, returns to the apex, and Zan tries the other configuration. At first, the warlock is unable to properly channel the energies into the crystals, so he tries again and again, nearly succeeding. Finally, he feels something within the apparatus break, and the core begins glowing more and more brightly. No matter what he tries with the crystals after that, they won't accept any more input. The core continues to brighten, and now that's accompanied by a high-pitched whine. Deciding this can't be a good thing, they abandon the monolith. Bramble and Lenore dimension door across the street with Zan and Switch. Warden, still in air elemental form, grabs Vesicod, carries him all the way down the hollow shaft of the monolith, out the previously sealed hole, and into the sky just as the core explodes with earth-shaking force, sending dust and debris flying out of the open seal at its base. For just a few moments, the 200-foot-tall metal shell stands firm before it crumbles from within into a thundering pile of rubble in the courtyard. And we'll find out what happens next. Next week. So this week, we're talking about making endearing villains. Because who doesn't love a cuddly a cuddly antagonist? <laughs> sure. Yeah. What I need is moral, moral, more moral dilemmas. That's what everybody needs, of course. Like, we want to make you feel bad about winning. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is a great way to give depth to an NPC, right? Like, we all love incongruous characters. We love people with multiple dimensions. And I, I think the, like, the, the lovable, the likable the respectable, the endearing villain is a common trope because it works. It works well. It's rewarding for people to engage with, right? Like, yes, a cackling villain is fun to take down, but there's more room for drama in your game if the enemy is complicated and likable and maybe even understandable or relatable or someone the PCs might even get along with were it not for the whole, you know, we are trying to kill each other thing or you know you want to win, win at any cost or like we're vying for the same lover or whatever yeah but the usual methods of delivering this from fiction aren't nearly as foolproof in rpgs for one simple reason players hold grudges yeah yeah uh-huh players take everything personally and so if you do something bad to them um they'll kill you <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh players are you know Perfectly capable of finding forgiveness for an NPC that murders a village full of innocents. As long as they don't care about any of those innocents. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> Nameless innocents. Yeah. Far less likely to parlay with somebody who stole their hat. <laughs> right, I liked that hat. They stole my hat at level two, and now we will kill them. 
Or, I'm jealous of his hat, mm -hmm. and I will have that hat, even if his head is still attached to it. It is a very fine hat. So this makes it really hard to keep the villain from crossing the moral event horizon. We, we did an episode on the, on the moral event horizon where, you know, it's the point of no return, past which there's no redeeming the character. But, <laughs> you know, when when it is the party that is wronged, pretty much anything crosses their their event horizon you know right. <laughs> being being slow to start driving at a green light is to, to put you on an uh, on, a, on a player character list right like the line isn't in the usual places you know and right. you can't always predict where it's going to be and now suddenly like you have this cool backstory and you want them to like get along with this person even though they're rivals or or, you know, you want them to be able to monologue or be interested or maybe even tempted to join their side or whatever. And, like, it's just not sticking because, you know, they they stole 10 gold <laughs> when it mattered. When 10 gold mattered, they stole it. It's, it's also, uh, you, you mentioned monologuing. And there's always that problem of, well, the players don't want to hear a monologue, but they do want to attack first. So, yeah, <laughs> they do like to alpha strike. The tragic backstory, undelivered. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some methods to like, actually make the villains in your story endearing to your players and not just uh, your readers. I think one of the first ways to do this is make them irredeemable, but magnificent. The, the point here isn't that there is a way out for them. You know, maybe it's too late to save the villain. Maybe the characters do hate them for whatever reason, and they are going to stab them in the front for stealing their hat at level two. Fine. All right. That's okay. That can that can happen. Things, there's already too much bad blood, or, you know, now you want to make them endearing, and it's like level 15 of your game. The villain can still be dashing, or charismatic, or funny, or brave, all in ways that are meaningful to the party even if they're going to stab them, right? Like it may not keep them from running them through as soon as they get the chance, but actually that's kind of the ideal scenario where like as a player is like having their character kill the villain, you're like, I did like them though. This was a good character, right? Like I'm a, as a player, I'm a little conflicted about ending this NPC, but as like a PC, I really want to end this NPC. <laughs> Yeah, I think to set this up, you need to make sure that the villain has time to engage with the party, mm -hmm. right? You don't want them to be a kind of distant force. You want them to be a present, uh, like uh, ever-present personality that they're dealing with. Yeah, and you probably have had that opportunity already because like otherwise, why does your party hate this person so much? You know, or like, why is there a grudge? And we, we've talked before about like, you know, if you need to keep your villain alive because they need to do something for the story, then like just separate them from the party and don't have them go anywhere. But you already now know that you don't need to keep this villain alive, right? Like they can set things in motion or whatever, but their real purpose here is to cause emotion in the players, maybe even emotional conflict, depending, and then to like die in a cool way because like everything they're doing is cool, right? Like play them like a PC, so they should have similar tactics, like they should make good decisions. They should have big, important goals that like might align, actually align with the PCs or, you know, be completely contradictory to them. But like they'll they'll quip, they'll 
make jokes, you know, in the same way that a, a PC will. Have them like walk right up to the fourth wall because the players are going to understand that this is an important person and this is a person that they can engage with on multiple levels, right? Both as a character in the story, but also as like a, a person who is enjoying banter. I like giving them insight into the PCs like kind of applying the GM's knowledge of who the players and the characters are uh, to the villain so that it becomes more personal, right? Uh, they, they almost like, this is honestly like, this is the uh, the Mr. Chang, right? Uh, Ken Jong's character in Community, right? Where like <laughs> he is right adjacent to the party, right? To the study group, an antagonist, but like just charming enough and just ingratiating enough and and just like always on the fence enough that it's like we couldn't do this show without him you know he can't go anywhere right and he and he knows them right and it's not questioned why he knows them it's cuz he's he's been there either in the background or or whatever and like this this is a good opportunity it's not that you want the villain to like know the character's secret backstory or whatever right but they should just be able to read them and say like oh you're greedy right and like you're the comic relief and like you're insecure or whatever and then leverage those to either make jokes at their expense or to like make insightful comments that maybe are lighthearted but may like maybe aren't right or to even they can even dispense advice whatever right like they're they're real people who are engaging with the party as real people and as equals i think that's right. probably the most important thing right they're not they're not deferential to the party they might i mean this can even be like they can be acting like they're part of the party right <laughs> like you know this is like the oh man still the unrequited love huh or it's like did you guys finally make out <laughs> you know it's, it's just <laughs> right. the, like we've been waiting you know like the like you, you start using like group pronouns instead of like the us instead of me right uh and, and, and sort of referring to the party in that way and then it, it becomes confusing for the players because it, it doesn't quite track right like this isn't what villains do yeah like i like it i like them I like the idea of them being like a fan of the party, you know, like, oh, yeah, no, I, I heard what you did in like Clifftop. That was that was really cool and interesting, you know, and I hadn't considered doing something like that before. Maybe we should do that together. I mean, right now I'm going to drop you into this acid and like take your stuff. They're irredeemable, right? So it's like, oh, my God, I can't believe like the murders you guys did in Clifftop choice. I, I would have never thought to drop a delayed blast fireball in a silence spell to get away with it. I just brilliant. Just honestly, I'm. You guys have really taken murder to a new level. I'm impressed. Wait, you didn't murder those people? Sure. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, no. They had it coming. I. <laughs> yeah. I get it. <laughs> they were guilty shapeshifters. Yeah. Uh huh. So was that orphanage. Uh, Treaty of Thronehold doesn't apply to individuals. Okay, only applies to uh, <laughs> nation states. So <laughs> I, I didn't commit any war crimes. Part of the reason that you might want to do this is like, as a GM, it's fun, you know, and. Actually, I kind of fall into this. I notice, uh, like, like this was Behemoth, you know, mm -hmm. like who was a jerk, and all of you hated him, but also you liked bantering with him and making fun of him, right? Well, right, because we got to tell you how much we hate you. Yeah, exactly. Through Behemoth, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, this is a good opportunity to have a GM stand in, you know. Um, but also you can loosen up and just interact with the party. That kind of the way that you're already doing it at the table as as like real people. 
Yeah, I, I do think that's an important caveat, though, with the, with the GM stand-in, right? Is like, if you also give this character plot armor, then mm-hmm. you end up with a Mary Sue, right? And so if they remain entertaining to the party and, you know, circumstances dictate that the party isn't able to deal with them directly for whatever reason, they can continue doing this. But at the moment where the party turns on them, uh, that has to be validated with a fight, right? Maybe they can escape, right? But it has to be validated with, yes, you can do that. Yes, you can try to kill them. Yes, you can try to dispatch with this problem immediately, right? Like, the, the players have to buy into this kind of character or else they're not a villain. They're a footnote. Yeah. And I think that's important with like all the people that we're talking about today, they are villains. So ultimately, they're supposed to lose to the party or like it's likely that they're going to lose to the party. Right. So eventually their stories come to an end. So like, don't, don't get too attached to them. Right. Yeah. They, they exist to die. Yeah. But they were born to die. Speaking of which, the next thing you can do with a villain to endear them to the party is give them a tragic backstory. Um, this works great for a doomed villain. Uh, it also works great for a redeemable villain. If you have a party mm-hmm. that is potentially into that kind of thing, you know, it gives them a hook for like why we might even want to do that. It probably doesn't excuse their actions. Right. And this is this is an instance where it's easier to cross the actual moral event horizon because um, it, it gives players insight into what pushed them into those actions. Most players will usually feel some sort of empathy with them, even if like they find the actions abhorrent or they think that in the, in the same situation, they wouldn't have their their character wouldn't have done that. Right. I, I think this is one where it is important that the backstory emerge from a third party mm-hmm. or from a third, re- like, you know, from a separate resource rather than from the villain themselves, right? So a monologuing villain talking about their tragic backstory is not sympathetic. Uh, learning about the tragic backstory from the head of the orphanage where they grew up, that's empath- that, that, that creates empathy, right? Uh, or, or sympathy even, um, right? Like, like understanding that when they aren't present, then colors the next interaction you have with them. Right. And it might even be something where when they confront the villain, like the villain has their own kind of reaction, right? They they feel shameful or they feel embarrassed or they are angry that they've been discovered, right? And like they're they're recreates conflict instead of resolving conflict. Yeah, and it's a nice opportunity to sort of put a piece of information in the hands of your party and then let the characters decide what they're gonna do with it. Right. So you might have you know, good or noble characters who look at that and say, oh, well, they weren't, you know, they weren't born this way and maybe we, they are redeemable and we should try to do that. And then you have other more practical characters saying, oh, hey, trauma, we could leverage that. Parents died in a fire. Great. Um, we're, let's get some alchemist fire. <laughs> no, bad. <laughs> I think it is useful to prod the PCs to think about what they would have done in the same situation as the villain in their backstory. And and I don't mean like ask them specifically or even have an NPC ask them specifically, right? But like, you know, um, it's quite likely that some member of the party is going to have some similar element in their backstory, right? And so you can you can start to sort of bring that out um, or, or have them think about it. Like what what are the similarities and... You know, how is it that your paths diverged? 
Yeah, and and you can do this easily by having a you know a third party NPC sympathize with the villain, right? So have a third party make the case for sympathy for the villain's tragic backstory, right? So it's the you know the the headmistress of the orphanage is the one who explains what happened, and then also is like, you know, I I, I mean, obviously they're not a good person, but I mean, what what could have been different? Right. Like, you know, just so it's so unfair to them to judge them because they had such a rough upbringing or or whatever. Right. Like when you posit it in that way, it becomes, um, you know, it's an opportunity to lay out the case without having it come from the mouth of the villain, Mm -hmm. because that isn't sympathetic at all. Right. Like that's just rationalizing your actions, which is kind of garbage. Right. I mean, at best, or it's just like whining. Right. While you're about to stab me. (laughs) Exactly. <laughs> or it's preening, which is kind of going back to irredeemable but magnificent. <laughs> sure. My parents died when I was little and I was dipped in a vat of acid. And you know, it's like, yeah, I'm a PC. Do you want to know what my backstory looks like? <laughs> exactly. Here's a list of all my loved ones. Why are their names crossed out? You know why. I would not have them be pawns in DM's game. So I killed them all <laughs> before I even rolled my first die. Next up, we have the impressive rival. So different from the bitter rival, uh, this is the character that will best the PCs with flair or cunning, but probably not cheating, unless the party is impressed by that, in which case, hey, best cheater in the land. I wish I could cheat that well. <laughs> I This is the, like, this is the, the, the Danny Ocean, like... Uh, you know, pickpocketing your wallet but leaving his business card, right? Right, I mean, right. That, mm-hmm. That's that's the move. Like, yeah, it's cheating, but like, I mean, it's pretty cool. Or you know the 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 racer X, right? Like, you never really know which of us is going to win in this particular race because when it really comes down to skill, to skill, we're pretty evenly matched. Or like, maybe you're even a little bit better, right? And I need I need a party or you know, help or patron or something in order to like match you. But like, I'm still, I'm impressed by your skill because I do it too. And I know how hard it is. This is uh Sasha Baron Cohen in uh Talladega Nights. <laughs> so I think this scenario is easiest to pull off. If you're not dealing with life or death stakes, it makes it really easy to avoid the moral event horizon. Like nobody's getting murdered when you're playing a racing game or whatever. Right. Right. Or, you know, you're vying for a position in the academic department. Although, I don't know, it could be a little murder when you're looking for tenure. I mean, that's a lifetime appointment. Hey, Tez may well murder a professor, okay? <laughs> it's interesting. You haven't seen Kemble in a while. I don't know. Yeah, stick around for season three of our action play. <laughs> Who knows what's happening to Ken Kemble right now? And I think this rival probably only really needs to impress one PC, at least to begin with, right? And then their admiration or their... Um, complaining about them, right, which is really just another form of admiration, uh, will become infectious eventually, at least in a good party, like when one character cares about something and expresses that, other people begin to care about it. And one way you can demonstrate that they are good at the thing is to lean into the mechanical representation, right? So, you know, there are story ways to do it, of bragging, right? I can do the Kessel Run and 12 parsecs or whatever, whether or not that actually like means anything. Um, but if the characters can see that the rival can like cast a seventh level spell, then 
the magic user in the group knows in game that that's an impressive thing, but also knows out of game that that's an impressive thing, right? That there aren't a lot of people who can also cast seventh level spells like me, or like I could only cast sixth levels or whatever, right? How do you prevent the impressive rival from just constantly one-upping the PCs? Because that gets one note and exhausting. Uh, and, and frankly, just pisses off the players. <laughs> I think one way to do it is to make the impressiveness mutual, right? Like, the, I think this goes back again to, like, it's really helpful to make them fans of the party for whatever reason, right? Maybe it's for their own nefarious purposes. And, like, you know, I like that you're good at something and I want to turn you over to my side or whatever. But it also might just be, like, they're in it, especially the impressive rival is, like, I'm I'm in it for the for the game, right? Right. And what do I want? I want another impressive rival because I don't always want to know that I'm going to win. I don't always, well, maybe I do always want to win, but like I need to know that there's a challenge out there. This is the Doc Holliday and Johnny Ringo, Mm. right? Like the the two deadliest gunslingers in the West happen to be in Tombstone at the same time. Uh, Johnny Ringo is constantly trying to pick a fight and... uh, Doc Holliday is so adept at sidestepping it, right? While while insulting him and belittling him, but not provoking him, mm-hmm. right? And and like he he just has that element of cool about him that is so frustrating to Johnny Ringo that he eventually oversteps and Doc Holliday is able to take advantage of him because he knows that Johnny Ringo is a better gunsman than he is. Like th- that's the trick, <laughs> right? Is like he knows that he needs an advantage or else he loses. That can be a fun scenario to put in front of your players, right? Like, this person is better than you, and you know that, right? You are good enough to know that they're better than you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a thing that you notice about them pretty much right off the bat. Uh, you know you're going to need help. Like, you can't, you can't win straight up. You need to tip the scales. I like that there, there are a lot of things that you can leverage here, right? Because if, if the rival can also see the skill or the ability or talent or promise of the party, then they're not necessarily always your biggest villain, right? Like, it might be that I, I like having you as a rival, and so I save you, you know? Or, or you know, I, I give you a clue about how to save yourself or what's coming or whatever, and, like, if you're smart enough or good enough or, like, a good enough driver or whatever, then you can get out of this. You know, yeah. and we'll see if you we'll see if you are right. And the the moment you think you could depend on that support is when they pull the rug out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? They are a villain. You're never supposed to be able to like count on them, but like, you feel good when someone saves your life. You know, right? Yeah, it feels better than dying. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for for a little while, and then I'd rather be dead. Yeah, I'd rather start over, play my second cousin. <laughs> So uh, another endearing villain uh, archetype is the redeeming quality, right? They're a typical villain except for the one thing about them that makes them different. Yeah, because remember that like, not every villain needs to be your BBEG and in-game villain, right? Like You can just have a hired goon who has a really good sense of style, especially if you know that like someone in the party no- would notice that and respects that. Right. If you have a fashionista in the group, put put a hired goon in nice duds. Right. Or the uh, you know the the pickpocket who is publicly giving back to the community. Right. That the the, the pickpocket who has a 
a wing of the church named for them. I mean, it's the Robin Hood thing. Like, right? Like, Robin Hood is technically a villain or, like, technically a well, someone who's not, I know, who's not not doing quote unquote the right thing right but like right. everyone who encounters robin hood is like oh no they're i like them yeah they're all like oodle lolly <laughs> golly what a day um or or like the uh the gentleman thief right the the person who steals not because not for the money they're like they're not gonna fence this thing they they steal for the challenge of it you know right and they don't steal from people who need the thing you steal from like you know, a museum who shouldn't have a thing or a private collector who like doesn't appreciate it or whatever, right? But who, someone who has the best security system. This can range a bit, right? Like, you know, it could just be, hey, they have a great sense of style, uh, as you said, but it could also cast them in a whole new light, right? They're a philanthropist. Uh, Locke Lamora is a priest of, uh, of, a, of a deity who is a thief. <laughs> so... He has to steal in order to worship his deity. Yeah, I mean, your your pickpocket might end up having letters from their parents thanking them for sending them the money, right? Like, right. when we first meet Jean Valjean, he is a villain. He's stealing from a priest. Right. Right, but, but he's doing it because he's desperate. The priest realizes that, and now Jean Valjean is our hero. Right. They might also have something in common with the party, or at least one member of the party. They might come from a similar place or have a similar background. They, you know, might love animals. And so they get along well with the druid. It might even be something as simple as like they like the same sports team as a member of the party or the whole party, right? If the party is all maybe from like one place. And and th this is not necessarily to say that this is a reason that your players are always going to remember this person and, you know, they'll talk about them for years. But it is a very easy way to just add some color to your villains. I wouldn't do this to every villain. I wouldn't do it to, like, every bodyguard that they have to beat up for information or whatever. Right. You know, but do it to some. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just a quick shorthand of, hey, this person is slightly decent. They have something in common. Yeah, and like it is a it is a good way if you want to sort of dial back maybe some of the gaminess that some groups can kind of fall into. Like, you know, you now you want to begin characterizing as much as possible the people that they're interacting with. And so mm -hmm. you're just you're just throwing one thing about them that's interesting and because like they're engaging with this person as a bad guy, you present a piece of information about them that turns that on its head. And of course, it doesn't matter who the villain is. If there is a bigger villain and both of you need to unite against them, having a common right. enemy is a great way to get along, at least for now. There's nothing like being number two and number three teaming up against number one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, this is the, um, look, I'm evil, you're good, but they're chaos. And if they win, the whole universe is destroyed. And the thing about the universe is I live in it. So... <laughs> I can't let that happen. You can't let that happen. Let's team up briefly, and then we can argue over who gets the spoils. That's Yeah, the universe is where I keep all the stuff I stole. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think this works really well if, like, it's the villain making the approach and being like, I think you need some help. You Or, you know, you need my help. This is the, uh, <laughs> literally, <laughs> what the bishop did to me <laughs> in season two. Yeah. 
of the actual play was like we're fighting and then she's like wait stop <laughs> and i said okay <laughs> why why i'm losing i'm happy to stop <laughs> okay we have a we have we have a bigger problem <laughs> this is interesting because it forces the party to see the good qualities of the villain or at least the good qualities of partnering with a villain right like now now you have to hang out together right like right. you're going on a quest together so it one presents a moral line that the villain will not cross right so it gives them boundaries it tells the party like where they stand right like i'm do you remember i don't know maybe you're too young for this i always think about <laughs> the rocketeer which i think was from like 1991 I am not too young for the Rocketeer, sir. Okay, all right, all right. Do you remember near the end? So so there's, there's a, a mob boss. I remember none of the Rocketeer, <laughs> sir. <laughs> so there's a mob boss who's like a bad guy throughout the whole movie. And he's fighting the Rocketeer all the time and like trying to shoot him and like trying to kill him, right? But then there's a moment when Timothy Dalton reveals himself to be a Nazi, right? Because it takes place during or like right before World War II. And like right. Hitler wants all these rocket packs so that he can like take over all of Europe. And, Naturally. The, and right. And then the mob boss is like, he immediately turns on Timothy Dalton, like points his gun at him. And he's like, I might be a criminal, but I'm an American. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's cheesy. Yeah. But like, that tells you everything you need to know about that villain who's like now right. no longer a villain because we're dealing with Nazis. Right. <laughs> and actually, suddenly you have like a bunch of Tommy guns that you can use. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Every gun not aimed at me is a good gun. Right? And, like, if you've done some of these other things, like, if some of these hired goons have nice clothes, and you've noticed that before, and now suddenly you're, like, in in the car with the suicide doors together, and they, like, hand you a Tommy gun, and you're like, oh, hey, I know that suit. That's a nice suit, right? Like, it it builds history with these characters. Right. And then, you know, that that proximity to their flaws can also be... Uh, enlightening as to how the characters feel about it, right? Like, sometimes it's fun to break bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, and now because you are fighting a bigger evil, you you kind of have to. Like, you don't, I guess, need to worry about if there's, like, illegal liquor in the boot of the, of the car, right? Right. Actually, maybe we're just going to drink it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> celebration afterwards. But with all of this, I think there are some techniques that are helpful to make the villain matter at all to the party, right? Because you can always throw someone at the party and they say, like, I don't care, you know, or they're the they're evil and I'm going to smite them or, you know, they don't do anything for, to advance our interests, so we don't want to engage. One easy way to do this is to have the redeeming quality that the characters like about this person be caused by or influenced by the party so if they've had interactions before and the party is like you know on the less villainous side or whatever and there's something intriguing about that or impressive about their skills or whatever you can have a villain begin to develop an arc where they adopt you know they don't become good necessarily but they adopt something that the characters like and now they have that in common and it's because of the characters that is a very reasonable technique that uh, 
I am 90% sure no player will trust. <laughs> so I prefer <laughs> if the villainy is caused or influenced by the party, not the redeeming quality. <laughs> I mean, this is why Batman is so tied to the Joker, right? Right, exactly. And so that way, uh, you can you can point to cause and effect, right? And they feel ownership of over the villainy. They might not care. I mean, you, you can't control PCs, but like at least they'll trust that it's true. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Or they'll try to, you know, <laughs> go through their 12 stages uh, or seven stages. I don't know how many grief stages there are, but anyway, they'll get to the bargaining stage. It's, five. Uh, it's, it's not five. really our fault. There's <laughs> right, five? Right. Okay. Well, it's not, it's not our fault. If you have the right kind of party, you can present the villain as having an actual real possibility of redemption, right? Like if they haven't crossed that moral event horizon, or even actually, even if they have, you could have them begin to come to terms with that. And then there's, a, there's always a process of like surrender and punishment, right? Um, you need a particular kind of party that like cares about that, you know, or cares about redeeming the villain and thinks that's, that that's an important thing to do. But if you do have that, then it is usually extremely important to those characters. Uh, if you have a group like ours, then <laughs> there's usually also a possibility of flipping the PCs to their side. <laughs> Party betrayal is never off the table for us. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's more interesting. <laughs> At least if they find a sympathetic ear amongst the party for whatever argument or course of action they're taking. Even if the party does bright line, hey, I would never join them. But like, they do kind of make a point, right? Like, maybe their method is wrong, but they do kind of make a point, right? Like, we can't just, can't just ice them. They kind of do have a point. I mean, maybe we don't help them. I mean, maybe, maybe we should help them. I, I, maybe we'll have that conversation, but, you know, maybe we don't stop them. Right, exactly. <laughs> Look, maybe Stalin's going to stop Hitler, okay? <laughs> maybe real... Stalin and Russian winter are going to stop right, Hitler. Yes, the real hero is Russian winter, yes. <laughs> uh, um, and then I think another way that requires a bit of planning or seeding ahead of time is giving the villain essentially the same backstory as one of your PCs. Um, and actually, they, the villain may have even been born out of one of their backstories, right? Like, they may have essentially been handed to you or you, like, built them out of a, a backstory. Which is why you kill every every member of your backstory. So none of them can come back to haunt you. Obviously. Like, don't don't let that, don't make that mistake of having a happy family. Right. <laughs> I mean, above the table, you could say, please don't hurt my family. And the GM should be like, okay, fine. But you know what we mean. You know what we mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If there's a named character in your backstory who doesn't have a fitting conclusion, they're going to end up a villain. Yeah, I found a fitting conclusion. Uh, but so you get this, you can get this comparison effect, right? Where, right. Where you have the character looking at the villain saying, you know, there but for the grace go I, right? Like we came from the same orphanage or we, we came from the same town or whatever. Or, we, or, or even just like we had the same opportunities and we're born with silver spoons or whatever. And like, look what happened to them. And like, right. I didn't, was that because of the choices that I made or was it because of like one freak accident or, or coincidence, you know, right. or, or, is like it, your... or is it because I know this party? Right. Yeah. Th this becomes your dark mirror. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so of course there are some caveats with villains. Uh, we should probably discuss, <laughs> first of all, villains are different from antiheroes. Don't confuse the two. 
uh, villains are not the protagonists. They do not advance the plot uh, unless the, the players are specifically empowering them to do that. Right. They are here to present the party with options. And then the party makes decisions and then they react accordingly. Right. They are the challenge. They are not the uh, the the action forward. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes you can get a little lost in the weeds when you start to build out your villains and making them more interesting and making them more well-rounded, right? You start to think of them as PCs. And while they can act like PCs, they don't have the same kind of narrative agency. Right. Don't lose sight of the purpose of the villain in the story, whatever that might be. Like, you don't want their uh, ancillary qualities to undermine their function as villain. Right. Like, they're yeah, they're there to evoke emotion in the party, whether that is frustration and rage or whether it's, you know, elation and joy after defeating them. Right. i also say it when anytime you're dealing with villains, be careful not to set up straw men where you are having them espouse a position or like giving them a characteristic. And then because they are evil or because they are the villain, you cast that position or characteristic in a bad light right like this is this is like the the old trope of like um you know only the the villain uh espouses like you know feminist ideals right in in like old movies or uh, even modern movies honestly yeah i guess the uh the narrower case of that is focusing on like disabilities or racial persecution as the cause for them being a villain Right, that becomes very dicey. Mm -hmm. We can't all be Killmonger. <laughs> right. Yeah, like, I think if a player introduces a story and says, like, you know, whatever, my character's an, an orc, and because of the persecution they face as an orc, here's how I feel about that, and here's how I act, that's certainly one thing. It's quite another to be like, this person was persecuted because of something they couldn't help, and that made them evil. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and it's not that that is uh, necessarily like an unrealistic reaction to a set of foul circumstances. It's that when these are the only reactions you present to those mm -hmm. circumstances, you paint those circumstances or, or you paint those people in a certain light. Right. Uh, I also say, and I might call this the Strahd problem. Um, I think it, <laughs> <laughs> I think it is lazy to just make your villains sexy. My personality is f***able. <laughs> like, that can be fun for a short amount of time, but in the long run, I, I don't think it particularly like, it engenders meaningful interactions, you know? I, I agreed, unless you're just going for shock value or, you know, your teenagers. Right. <laughs> Which is the same thing. Um, <laughs> uh, th then the other piece of this, I think, is like, be careful about forcing the issue, right? Like sometimes you have good ideas that are laid out and executed and they just bounce off the players and that's okay, right? Like take another, you get multiple bites of the apple in an RPG campaign. It's mm -hmm. okay if one villain doesn't really land um, or several villains don't really land, right? Like don't try, you know, stop trying to make fetch happen. Like it's, it's okay. Just move on. But fetch is from the same town that you are. I don't understand. <laughs> and fetch has letters to their mom. Fetch donates to charity. <laughs> On Fridays, Fetch wears pink. 
that's sort of important here. If you're doing all this work of trying to make villains cool and interesting and nobody cares, they're probably already like the game as it is. Don't worry about it. Right. So, uh, as with all things, variety is the spice of life. So, you can't make every villain endearing, mm -hmm. but if you try to make some of them endearing, some of them will land and you'll enrich your story for it. Yeah. Don't do this to everyone. Don't try to do this to everyone. In fact, an endearing villain makes a great counterpoint to your cacklingly evil, like, spite-hate villain. Right. So, have fun with it. All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? It's just gnashing and wailing of teeth, and I just can't believe how sexy they are. That's a villain. <laughs> well, <laughs> if we're getting down with the villain, it's time <laughs> to move on to the character creation forge and see what we procreate. But before we do that, let's talk about how we're... That's not the right verb. <laughs> the do. character procreation for... Wait a second. Hold on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building Carmen Sandiego. So Ishan, I ask you again, where is Carmen Sandiego? No, who is Carmen Sandiego? <laughs> uh, speaking of endearing villains, Carmen Sandiego is the world's greatest thief. She's a criminal mastermind and the chief antagonist of her eponymous video game series, uh, notably, she wears a red fedora and a red trench coat, and she's got mm -hmm. multiple backstories, as any character who has had fiction written about them for several decades does. Uh-huh. Uh, but she runs uh, Vile, V-I-L-E. She has plenty of Vile henchmen. Uh, mm -hmm. And she is able to steal anything, specializing in monuments and very large buildings. <laughs> and apparently academic concepts. <laughs> Yes. All right. So what's the build? It is Chronergy Wizard 17, Scout Rogue 3. Um, I have a feeling this might sound like a weird build for Carmen San Diego for those of you out there, but like bear with us. Okay. <laughs> yes. Those of us out here who are recently <laughs> playing the video game, Where in the World's Carmen San Diego, as recently as 1993. Yes. We've been thinking about this a lot, Ishan. It, it came out in 1985. So playing, could have been playing for a lot longer. A lot yeah, but longer. I was playing it in 1993. <laughs> I got a solid eight years out of it. Did you ever catch her? I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes, it takes a while. I um, mean, this is like, you know the apple t not apple too but uh I, I, this is the, i mean this is like school computer lab computer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right like as a child i i have no recollection yeah in the library all right so race human obviously but we're gonna try mark of passage human from eberron which trades that feat for plus five speed plus d4 to acrobatics um a plus d4 to land vehicles for your getaway car uh, misty step once per day, which is a convenient way to get out of any handcuffs, just in case someone did actually catch up with you. And also it adds pass without trace to your spell list, which is quite difficult to get and an excellent way to make sure that no one is following you or can tell where you've been and what you have stolen. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So we're going to kick it off with three levels of rogue. I know most people here are like, no, she's a thief rogue or she's a mastermind rogue. Yeah, I guess. Okay. But from three levels of scout, she gets these can't expertise in your choice of stealth, sleight of hand or deception. She gets sneak attack. She also gets expertise in nature and survival. And remember, she's an expert in geography. She is, could be at any moment, anywhere in the world and will know where she is and how she got there and the flag of that of the nearest port and also the currency of neighboring nations okay like she knows all this stuff which is why she's a scout okay <laughs> also if an enemy uh, ends their turn adjacent to her she can move half speed without uh, provoking which is a great way to make sure that no one can ever slap cuffs on you then from wizard 17 uh, we will get a whole host of spells. And now keep in mind, she's a thief, right? She's not a transmuter. She's not a necromancer or whatever. The spells that Carmen Sandiego picks are the things that make her better at stealing stuff. Sleep for guards. Jump for second story work. Spider climb. Invisibility knock. Enlarge reduced if you've got something. Like, this vase is just very large and unwieldy. I'll just make it smaller and put it in my pocket. Yes, this monument is very large and unwieldy. I'll just make it smaller and put it in my pocket. Ah, we will get there. <laughs> you just wait. Okay. <laughs> Suggestion. Hi, I think uh, that's mine. Hypnotic pattern is a great way to make everyone uh, in the room just hang out there for a little bit while you relieve them of their valuables. So wizard gets arcane recovery. Um, chronergy wizard gets uh, twice per day you can force a reroll of an attack roll ability check or a saving throw and you get in um, intelligence modifier to initiative she always goes first she's always on quick on her toes you get momentary stasis int mod times per day you spend an action to incapacitate somebody for one round which is another great way to give people the slip um, at level 10 you can hand off a spell to someone else and they can use it which I think she does quite often with her vile mm -hmm. henchmen yep uh, and then at 14, you have Convergent Future. Uh, in exchange for a level of exhaustion, um, you can make an ability check, a saving throw, or an attack roll, either succeed or fail. Uh, that's one that you see, so either one that uh, uh, one of yours or someone else's. Okay, fine, whatever. The real reason we're doing all of this is because we need to be able to steal monuments. How do we do that? True polymorph. Okay. So the... The true polymorph spell has several things that it can do. It can take a creature and turn it into a different creature. It can take a creature and turn it into an object. And it can take an object and turn it into a creature. There's no limit to the size of the object. <laughs> just, now, just a limit to the definition of object. Of object. Got it. Now, now, you cannot turn an object into an object. You can only turn an object into a creature. So I would say if you're going to walk up to, I don't know, the Washington Monument, and what is that if not an object, you uh -huh. put your hand on it and in a single action, turn it into, I would go with a tortoise. Not going to get away. Exactly. Right. And that's the thing. It only lasts as long as this thing is alive. So you need something kind of sturdy. You need something that's not going to run away from you. Uh, you just flip it over. Right. And now you have a convenient way to store your monument and leave. Now, were I Carmen San Diego, and I'm trying to steal lots of things, you know, if you concentrate on the true polymorph for one hour, 
it becomes permanent until dispelled. Okay, but if this turtle dies, suddenly the Washington Monument shows up in my pocket, and that's not a great scenario for anybody on my plane. Hey, is that the Washington Monument in your pocket, <laughs> or are you happy to see me? Hey, it was a turtle, and now we're all dead. Uh, so I think what Carmen Sandiego does is takes these turtles and uh, stacks them up, and then uses the six-level spell Flesh to Stone <laughs> and petrifies these turtles. So she makes a Medusa garden of uh, turtles I think, I that think are she, monuments? <laughs> uh, to just, just to store them. Just long enough to store them, right? She can always turn them back into turtles, uh, dispel it, and then boom, there you go. She has her own little Las Vegas wherever she happens to live. <laughs> but yeah, does, okay. she have, does she have a portable monuments? No problem. And also, like, she eventually returns the monument, usually, you know. Or I guess well, when, right after the after the kid at the end of the game show figures out where she is mm-hmm. and the monument right. goes back and p- puts the parking meter or whatever it is they're running around on the right country. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't. I was thinking about that the other day. I don't. I don't know what that game was. Yeah, yeah. It was. I always thought I would kill, but whatever. Um, I will say some feats are would be are useful here. Keen mind uh, makes it she always knows which which uh, way is north. Um. Linguist gives her additional languages. I'm sure she speaks many languages, but it also lets her make ciphers. And what are these geography riddles, if not ciphers? True. And then Metamagic Adept, I would take Subtle Spell at the very least because we never see her cast a spell, so she must be doing it subtly. Obviously. Mm-hmm. Right, that's definitely what's happening. Oh, and right, she's, she's Chronager Wizard because like you know she can travel through time. Apparently, so if that's just thematic. If you want to do any other wizard subclass, it's fine. Yeah, that no, that tracks. Yeah, I mean it's. Yeah, I mean sure. Yeah, like technically she is stealing via transmutation, but come on, it's, it's fine. Yeah, she, she's stealing monuments from any any point in history. Mm-hmm. Come on, mm-hmm. the history of medicine. It's oh, a monumental right. discovery. That's, that's why she cares. Uh, it's a monumental loss. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. And supporters at any level get access to our Plot Hook of the Week bonus content. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all of our awards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. All right, what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about dice. And in the character creation forge, we're building the Dice Goblin. Well, that's it for episode 310 of Total Party Thrill. I hope you lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. 